from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Chris Cavillan on October 17, 2016. Chris is the author of the book Nudges from Grandfather, Honoring Indigenous Spiritual Technologies. It's the first in a series that is titled Honoring Indigenous Spiritual Technologies. Chris has a Ph.D. in law with his thesis titled The Protection of Indigenous Medical Knowledge, Transforming Law to Engage Indigenous Spiritual Concerns. It's not surprising that Chris is devoting his life to the protection of indigenous peoples and their technologies. He grew up with a father that specialized in indigenous psychology, and he lived and worked with several Native American communities. I started the interview by asking Chris where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was actually born in New York City, um, but that's kind of coincidental because my mother worked in the hospital, and women's hospital in Manhattan. Uh, actually, first five years of my life or so was in northern New Jersey, and there was a period of time where we lived near the Jackson White community, which is, I later found the term tri-racialite community when I was doing my PhD, but I didn't know that at the time. But the, it's a combination of escaped African slaves, sympathetic whites and Native Americans who all lived together in an abandoned mining area in northern New Jersey. And we lived near them, and my mother uh, would work there as a social worker, and we visited the different families and had families staying in our house at certain times. So I didn't really think of it as an us-them situation, but later found out that that was quite unique to have that childhood experience. And then my father was a psychologist who specialized in indigenous psychology. So I got to live on the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming towards the later stages of my young life. Tell me more about this tri-racial community. I mean, I understand the historical significance, but it sounds like it maintained this tri-racial mix as you were growing up. I have a child memory of it, so it couldn't give you too much analytical from the experience, but I do recall, you know, spending time with them and basically yeah, escaped African slave, sympathetic whites and Native Americans who I suppose that must mean that uh, in the 1800s when the slave trade was on, perhaps there was some collaboration around escaping the, the slavery situation and Native Americans and whites collaborating with African Americans and intermarrying and forming families and being rejected by all three, <laughs> all three mm, races. So right. having to live in an abandoned mining area as the place that nobody wanted. Mm. So that's a little bit of what I assume from the history of it. You know, my reflections, uh, I remember going with my mother when I was about two years old and going from door to door and visiting with families and checking in. And I remember being inspired by the kindness that I saw. So what was religious life like growing up? I lived in a lot of places in the States. We moved around a fair bit. 
for various reasons. Like I mentioned, my, my dad was a psychologist who lived on the Wind River Indian Reservation and Haskell Indian Nations University of South Carolina for a while. And I remember when we moved from northern New Jersey to South Carolina, I started going to the Lewis Gregory Institute. There was like Baha'i summer school there with just a lot of really beautiful people from around the country that were coming there. And I just remember as a kid, just going out into the sugarcane fields and playing with other children and enjoying the, the singing and the music, just the social life. We used to go to monthly meetings as Baha'is at feasts where we have kind of devotional programs where there's writings read from the scriptures of different faiths. So you grew up as a Baha'i then? I did. I grew up as a Baha'i. And do you know how your parents became Baha'is? Yeah. So the first Baha'i in my family was my mother's mother, Martha Louise Cavillan. At the time, she was Martha Louise Hamilton. She was studying music at Juilliard in New York City, and she met my grandfather, Bora Cavillan. He was studying opera, and she was studying piano, and they were both at Juilliard. And he was the son of a rabbi uh, from Minsk. Uh, they fell in love, and she was the daughter of an Episcopalian minister. So the daughter of an Episcopalian minister and the son of a Russian rabbi fell in love. They got engaged, and while they were engaged, uh, she went to Macy's. There's a makeup store in there. And she went there, and she was in line, and she was at the counter. And the person in front of her was African-American. This is in the 30s, and she's from Jackson, Mississippi, my grandmother. She's in New York at the counter, African-American woman in front of her. And the woman behind the counter is serving the African-American woman. And she's serving her with a lot of respect and courtesy. When it's my grandmother's turn, she says to the woman behind the counter who's white, says, I couldn't help notice that you treated that woman with a lot of dignity and respect, which is really unusual to see. And I come from Jackson, Mississippi, and it's something that I'm quite sensitive to. And I just wondered if there was a reason for that degree of respect you were showing her. And she said, oh, yes, I'm a Baha'i, and we believe that people are family from all cultures and races, and there were flowers of the same garden. And so my grandmother was very interested, and she started attending firesides, which are gatherings where people attend at an individual's home to ask questions and share a bite to eat, perhaps, and have some conversations around the nature of the Baha'i faith. And my grandmother quickly became a Baha'i. And soon after, my grandfather, who was engaged to her at the time, he was worried this might be, you know, a cult or something. And so he started attending these to keep an eye on it because, you know, he's concerned his fiancés just changed faith suddenly. And after about a year, he became a Baha'i. Those were the first Baha'is in my family. Great story. One of the Baha'i teachings is the independent investigation of truth and that at some point one who was born into the Baha'i faith is expected to really investigate for themselves as they themselves want to be a Baha'i and that they see the Baha'i faith not as being their parents' religion but that's their own religion. So I'm wondering at what point would you say that you own the Baha'i faith as being your religion rather than being 
a religion of your parents? Oh, that's a great question. I remember growing up as a Baha'i and thinking about this because I was advised that you know, when I was going to turn 15, you know, the age of maturity in the Baha'i faith, I was going to be given the choice of choosing whether I would be a Baha'i or not. And leading up to that, my parents encouraged me to read the scriptures from all the different faiths. And I actually did read you know, a number of the different books from the world's religions, like Bhagavad Gita and the Quran and the Old Testament or the Tanakh. It's more respectfully to the Jewish community. And when I was 15, I remember signing my card and my grandfather was there. And it was, you know, I felt other people's joy in my decision. You know, I felt confident in it, but it wasn't like an epiphany. But what happened when I did have my epiphany some years later was I was working in Haifa, Israel, where the Baha'i World Center is. There was an election in 1988. The international body of the Baha'is of the world was being elected every five years. In this 1988 election, I happened to be a security guard, volunteer youth. And I was at the conference hall, and it was one of the first days of the international convention. There's two parts, I guess you could say, to the election as I saw it. One was the electing of the members of the international body, but also consultation by the international community around sharing their experiences and understanding of what the world you know, needs and their learning from their spiritual and social experiences. And people line up to share something and speak at uh, different microphones around the hall. And I remember I was at the back of the room and I was listening. A judge from the U.S. got up and spoke and, you know, spoke very eloquently and people applauded and it was, you know, very wise and made a good contribution. Then after the, that person spoke, a person from Papua New Guinea got up to speak. Now, part of the unspoken tradition is that people wear their cultural costumes. And so there were representatives from nearly every country on earth in that room and the diversity of colors and, you know, what people were wearing. And this person from Papua New Guinea was wearing his traditional clothing. And I remember his name was Bob Napoli. He made such an impression on me. And he had the bone through the nose and the bright makeup and the, the headdress. And he got up and spoke and he spoke about the intergenerational importance of educating children in a very profound way that resonated with the whole auditorium and the applause was thunderous you know and people stood up and really moved the whole room you know and I was thinking it wasn't that the judge's presentation was not good or not wise it was just the wisdom of what had been shared really hit home as on, on the pulse of what was happening in the world and what was needed for children. And I thought to myself, you know, where in the world could you have somebody at the federal level of, you know, being a judge and then somebody who, quote unquote, is, you know, un, uneducated in the traditional Western sense, wearing a loin, loincloth and their traditional dress, but just being judged on the basis of their wisdom. And I thought, where in the world is there any global system where that could happen? And that, at that moment, I said, yeah, I'm a Baha'i. You have published your first book called Nudges for Grandfather, and I want to talk about that. You got your Ph.D. 
related to indigenous studies of some kind. Can you can you elaborate on that? Yeah, my PhD is in law, and it's on the protection of indigenous medical knowledge, transforming law to engage indigenous spiritual concerns. That's the name of the thesis that I did. Basically, what's the relationship that you present in the relationship to law and indigenous medicine? Well, I mean, I kind of have to go back a little bit to story it, because if you remember, I mentioned that for some time I lived on the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming. I had this experience, really it was a blessing, in the mountains of Wyoming, there was a son of a medicine man who was showing me his mountains, and, and he was pointing out to different animals, and he was saying, there's courage. And he'd point to another animal, and he'd say, there is sacrifice. And then to another one, he'd say, there is nobility. And then he had to story for me what it was about each of those animals that taught us to be more fully human when we looked at the spiritual quality of the creator that was reflected in each of those animals. I thought it's such a beautiful way to see the world, but I was profoundly aware that I felt quite blind. And it wasn't just his vision, because all of my native friends seemed to have a, a similar way of speaking and seeing the, the natural world. This stayed with me. And when I was doing my master's at University of Sydney on the environmental crisis, I was looking at how the environmental crisis is partly due to the inability of Western civilization to value the spiritual nature of nature. <laughs> and so to see, perceive the spiritual intrinsic qualities of nature. So instead of just seeing the commercial value of a tree, being able to see its, its spiritual value and that that further has consequences for how we do development with construction or choosing to respect the, the natural sets of relationships rather than importing plants that may not be suited to that area, you know, different things like that that have practical consequences. But while I was researching my master's thesis, I wanted to have a practical focus. I wanted to have a chapter that didn't just talk about some of the spiritual issues. While I was doing that, I found out that most of the world's medicines, pharmaceutical medicines, actually are appropriated from indigenous peoples. And I was quite shocked by this because at that time, it was more than 75% in the common, you know, well-accepted literature, 75% uh, of naturally-based pharmaceutical products come from indigenous communities. Having spent time on reservations just gave me a sense of, I guess, some of the justice issues where... If most of the world's medicines are coming from indigenous communities, how is it that we have this kind of discourse where we say they're some of the most unhealthy people and there's a deficit in the way that the media portrays indigenous peoples and the respect that we have for them? And yet the very criteria by which we judge how advanced a civilization is, its ability to provide health, our health system is dependent on indigenous people. So I really wanted to investigate that. And then I found out that the Australian government was wanting to create a national program of acquiring more medicines from indigenous communities around 2001. And they were going to do a parliamentary inquiry into how to do that. But they used a technical language that I didn't think many people would understand. So I started calling law schools while I was doing my master's. 
to ask who's doing work in this area? What are the laws to protect indigenous people's knowledge around this? And most of the time I got kind of silence on the other end of the phone, but eventually I found a university where they said, oh, we do have a professor here, and um, they passed me through to her. I went to interview her to ask her advice about things, and I was my intention was to focus on those practical matters and write that up. And it became clear that there was an assumption that I was there to apply for a PhD in law, even though I hadn't graduated from my master's yet. And by the end of the day, I was staring at this ID card saying, I'm now doing a PhD in law. There was no intent the week before to do a PhD in law, but it just kind of naturally happened that way. So that began a, a journey of trying to understand law and what might work in, as a solution. Let's talk about your first book called Nudges from Grandfather. Why don't you tell us what inspired you to write this work and describe for us, for those who might be interested in reading the book, what they would find in the book? Yeah, so it's called Nudges from Grandfather, Honoring Indigenous Spiritual Technologies as the subheading. It is connected to my PhD and the experiences I've already shared with you in the sense that one of the practices that I developed while I was doing my PhD was to track down pharmaceutical drugs back to the communities and the plants that they came from. So different cancer drugs, HIV medicines. And I would then travel to the communities to express gratitude and acknowledgement and share the information I had discovered. You know, in those relationships, I began to have other experiences of learning uh, deeper spiritual understandings of what led to the discovery of the medicines in the first place and different spiritual practices of what I would say as the core practice of the prayerful action and service to others. All the different indigenous communities that I began to spend time with had different variations of these spiritual technologies that enabled them to discover medicines and other things. In my travels around the world, I would have very fascinating experiences. And I had different people asking me to write about some of these stories of these travels and what I was learning. I would put pen to paper, and this is over the past you know, decade or so, I couldn't write it. I had a head of state ask me, could you write something? And I would just sit there and look at the computer and I couldn't do anything. And then about a year and a half ago, I returned from South Africa and Canada after a wonderful trip. And I had the blessing of working with some of the people that had been working with Nelson Mandela and wanting to do some transformation of some of the justice system there. And I had a amazing experience. And I was sharing with my daughter, May, in a cafe in Sydney. And uh, we were having coffee together. And I was telling her one of the stories. Afterwards, she said, Dad, you need to write a book. If, if you don't, I will. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as my daughter asked me, all of a sudden, it just flooded out. All of these stories just came out within a matter of months. And I realized, you know, when my children asked me to, there I was able to because, you know, there was a period of time where I wasn't able to really have much time with my children for a number of years. I think partly the grief of that energized my feeling like I want to share these things with my children. Yeah, so it just flooded out. 
all of the stories are kind of independent in that they're like short stories where something has a beginning and an end in itself. But there's kind of a common thread there of our connection with the spiritual realm and ancestors and some of the things that I was learning in that journey. So I'd asked you to select an excerpt to share with us from Nudges for Grandfather. Are you ready to share that with us? Sure. So this is in the introduction. It's a conversation with my son. Let me share a little story that simplifies some of my current understandings of how those in the next world work with us. When my son Enoch was about 14 years old, we were walking together around the Sydney Opera House in Australia. As we rounded the back of the Opera House and looked out over the beautiful harbor, my son turned to me and asked, Dad, do we believe in reincarnation? I paused before answering and found myself saying, you know how I love you, right? Yeah. Well, when I die, I won't stop loving you. And when I die, my spiritual vision will increase. And one of the things I'll be able to see is a better understanding of your true self. I'll see your spiritual gifts and qualities. I'll also have an ability to see where your gifts match needs in the world. You and I can better stay connected if you're praying for me and doing acts of service in this world for me. If you're doing that, then I have a better chance of influencing you with my guidance in your dreams or creative thoughts. Your heart is the perceptual organ through which you can see your way towards your goal. So let's say that in the next world, I can see that one of your gifts matches that of a girl on the other side of the world. I'll look at her and think, I love Enoch and I'd like to bring these two together. However, I can't directly influence her as I don't have any connection with her. However, I can look over and see her grandparents in the next world. So I go over to them and say, hey, you see my son and you see your granddaughter? You see what I see? And then they'll influence their granddaughter to move in your direction and I'll influence you to move in hers. Then, then one day you'll meet and say, it feels like we've met before, like I've known you in a previous life. And you'll experience coincidences and a sense of magnetic connection. So in that sense, it is true. You did meet in a previous life, so to speak, because previous generations on both sides worked to bring you together. And you'll feel that intergenerational connection. When that happens, it will be important for you to talk with each other and explore your sense of purpose and shared values. There may be a need in the world that can be fulfilled by your working together. It's important in such moments not to confuse that magnetic feeling for romantic love, because maybe you're meant to be of service to the world together. There may also be romance, but don't get lost in that and lose focus on the service together. I finished, and then Enoch looked amazed and said, I can't wait for that to happen. I said, well, I'm not dead yet. Don't rush it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Sure. From my understanding, this book is a first in a series. So can you describe for me what the series is and what we can expect in your next set of work? The underlying focus in each of the books is honoring the indigenous spiritual technologies, as I call them. And so in this first book, the primary focus is in that ancestral connection with those in the next world and practical stories of seeing that at work and learning from others about 
uh, how to engage in those relationships in a meaningful way of service to others. The second book, which is Medicine of Our Ancestors, or Ancestors Are Medicine, is a more in-depth focus on a range of issues associated with indigenous understandings of health and medicine, some of the wisdom, some of the unique practices for discovering new medicines and preserving ancient ones, the relationship between honoring nature and preserving our environment as part of the health system, the relationship with the ancestral realm, the way that practicing courage to serve others even when we don't feel able to, that we practice new behavior, it awakens genetic capacities that we inherited from our ancestors who actually did do that kind of service and passed it on to us, but it doesn't get awakened until we actually practice it. Different things like that. So stories from around the world around different medicines and how they were developed, as well as the historical framework of that, but all woven with personal stories of actually interacting with different traditional healers and communities. Is there a third book? The third book hasn't been written yet, but... The second book has been written. The second book is about halfway underway now. So it's been mm-hmm. outlined and some of the chapters have been written mm-hmm. and that should be released uh, next year. And so the third book is a concept. Well, you know, one of the things that I can't predict and that was occurring with the first book was when I would tell the stories, they would actually come to life, so to speak. You know, some of these stories were from 10 years ago, some more recently. But one of the indigenous protocols is that you need to ask for permission to tell a story if you've heard it from someone else or if they're involved in the story and it's their knowledge that's being shared. So I needed to contact the different people in each of these stories to ask permission to also share with them and say, is this respectfully stated? And when I did that, I would find out that the amazing stories that felt like a full circle when I wrote them were actually just the stage one of developing a capacity for a higher level of service in the community. And there was actually another part two to the story that would unfold. Both book two and book three are going to be kind of some of these ongoing living uh, expressions of those stories in that way. Chris, where can one go to find your work? You can just Google the book title, or you could go to Amazon. You can get it from pretty much any bookstore. You can order it. It's available through the distribu- distribution networks for that most bookstores have access to. It's available as an ebook. You can go to CD Baby and download an audiobook. I recorded most of the chapters with some different content in some cases in a recording studio. There's a few options there. I've got a website chriscavillan.com. So if somebody goes to your website, what would they find? They would find a blog where there's kind of like little snippets of new stories that uh, emerge that I try to update. Information I share when I'm going to be somewhere or there's a book launch or an event like a workshop 
I have some samples of the audiobook available, some of the sample chapters, and links to being able to get the first book or advanced copies of the second book. Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Warren. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris Cavillan, author of Nudges from Grandfather, Honoring Indigenous Spiritual Technologies. You can find his work at chriscavillan.com. That's Chris with a C, Cavillan, that's K-A-V-E-L-I-N. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Yeah.
difficulties save God. Say praise be God. He is God. All are His servants and all
If I had stopped to listen once or twice If I had closed my mouth and opened my eyes If I had cooled my head and warmed my heart I'd not be on
They take your mind and they're attacking it. They're just yes. some blood sucking money hungry Draculas. Hey. Yo, they say that life is tough. Ain't no way that you can battle yes. it and put you in a cloud of confusion. Labyrinth. So now you're jaded. Dreams so faded. Yes. So you're living that life, but really you're living wasted. Hey. This is a digital age. Don't be a digital yes. slave. Don't gotta sacrifice your life to be brave. Hey. They think that if you're young, then your brain you can't use. So yes. they make fake realities that they hand you. Hey. And stuff it in your ears as if you can't hear yes. the truth. The power's in the hands of the youth. Say. Hey. Getting rich with the hype and the fallback over the transient things that we got here. Tell me where the line of consuming stops at when the value of what is priced high isn't all that. It's probably made by a child in Vietnam or a girl in Cambodia that's working till the dawn. So the thugs from Thailand don't try to buy a little sister. Driven by the tears of her mother when she kissed her goodbye. But yeah, I guess you're looking kind of fly with all that fresh gear that you just buy. I mean, bot, what's the vocabulary I'm taught? Swag, swag, it's scary, is it not? Or is it just me? Am I going crazy? Isn't it wrong what they've done any wrong with B-I-H-E? I guess the freedom everywhere's a silhouette. Over there they can't study. Over here we're still in that say. Say. Yeah. Say. Okay, we go. Think that if you're young, then your brain you can't use. So they make fake realities that they hand you. They stuff it in your ears as if you can't hear the truth. The power's in the hands of the youth. The truth. The power's in the hands of the youth. It's the truth. The power's in the hands of the youth. Say. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.